Hi there, this is Kent Roundy coming back at USH Med Student. I've got a new guest here today with me. Um, would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, hi everyone. Uh, this is Peter Huang. I am a fourth year medical student at Rocky Vista University. I'm here returning for the second time. Um, and yeah, here to talk to you today about a delirium in the hospital. Delirium in the hospital. So before we go there, tell us what you're planning on going into. Right, so I am... Um, applying for and in the process of submitting my rank list for internal medicine residencies. Um, as far as long-term goals, uh, I'd either like to work as a hospitalist or potentially as um, intensivist in critical care units. So coming up with delirium was uh, an accident then? Yeah, in a way. I think um, my experience with uh, delirium particularly is uh, first two years, you know, you learn what delirium is and um, you know, kind of had to answer board questions about it, um, which I found out pretty quickly as a third and fourth year is when you experience it in real life, uh, yeah, it's kind of a beast. You're not really sure where to start, what to do, and it can be pretty intimidating. So, um, you know, I hope that you guys find this uh, talk to be informative and helpful and um, kind of give you a good approach to how to approach it and identify it. So quite often, these podcasts have modest yield for uh, the shelf exam, not the shelf exam, I'm sorry, the board's exam, right? Mm -hmm. Modest yield for the shelf exam probably as well at the end of a psychiatry rotation. I am under the impression that this topic may have more yield than most other podcasts that we've done. Yeah, that's the goal. Hopefully there's a couple things that are uh, helpful for you and um, particularly a couple things I wanted to emphasize. Um, you know, it's been about a year since I took my psychiatry shelf exam, and you know, to be honest, I don't remember too much about what was on there. Um, but I do remember um, a number of vignettes where um, basically you get a patient presenting who is uh, really out of it, pretty wild, and um, kind of from the stem you needed to identify whether uh, what the cause is, whether it's substance, uh, acute psychosis, mania, or uh, potentially delirium, and um, I remember was that there is a number of different options based off what you thought was going on as far as uh, initial treatment. So hopefully this will kind of clarify how to identify if it's delirium and uh, what to do about it. You and I were visiting before the presentation about the types of delirium. Mm -hmm. Talk about the ways that delirium might present, if you would. Yeah, sure. So I think to um, kind of set the stage, um, there is some diagnostic criteria. And um, just to reference the DSM-5, they have um, five features of delirium. So um, immediately it would be disturbed attention or awareness, um, and then an acute onset. So delirium is something that uh, occurs throughout the course of hours or a couple days. Um, and then the third would be cognitive impairment, so whether that be memory, language, or uh, perception. And then um, this fourth criteria uh, is not explained by existing neurocognitive disorder, so um, essentially it excludes another primary diagnosis, whether that be psychosis, mania, or intellectual, intellectual uh, disability. And then um, the last would be evidence that this is caused by a medical condition or a substance or medication. So um, essentially a precipitating factor, which would uh, distinguish delirium um, over other primary diagnoses. Um, as far as delirium itself, um, I think the easiest one to identify would be um, hyperactive delirium. So that's where you see patients that are agitated clearly out of it, not making sense. And um, quite honestly, a lot of times a problem um, for you and the staff. 
Um, but the, another um, aspect of delirium, which is really important to note, but a lot harder to identify, is the hypoactive delirium. So these are patients that, um, you know, might abnormally be quiet, uh, seems like they're out of it the entire day. Um, and those are the patients that you need to um, particularly pay attention to and investigate because, um, as we'll discuss here, um, the incidence of delirium has a lot of long-term implications for your patient's well-being. I like you leading into that. Why don't we, first of all, talk about a couple of patients that had a hypoactive delirium that I saw. Quite often as, an, as a consult liaison psychiatry resident, I would get called to rooms to assess for depression. And we would joke before that would happen because we would all bet, not bet, but friendly wager kind of statements. Um, do you want to bet if this is a delirium or not, right? And so we would go into the room, do a mini mental status exam or some form of that. And of course the patients were often hallucinating, terrified, under their covers shaking because they were seeing these hallucinations that made no sense and often very, very withdrawn. So these quiet deliriums can be very, very terrifying for patients based on my experience in the, uh, many years ago now on the medicine wards. So. Um, uh, let's talk about identification of delirium. I mean, these quiet deliriums, mm -hmm. not easy to find, right? Right, yeah. So um, there's a couple of tools. Um, you know, I think uh, hyperactive delirium kind of speaks for itself. Well, the first time you see it, you'll be able to know something's not quite right. Um, but as far as, um, you know, different screening tools that we have, um, there's a couple or a number of them really that have been developed um, with different effectiveness. Um, as far as kind of the standard of care right now um, is the, the confusion assessment method or the CAM you'll see, which is um, essentially just a nine question yes or no survey um, used by the provider. Um, and you use that to kind of grade and score whether or not a patient um, potentially has delirium. Um, kind of some of the benefits of it, it's been found to be anywhere from 90 to 100% sensitive and with an over 90% specificity. So um, at this point, this is uh, likely the, the best tool that we have. Um, in my own experience, uh, particularly working in the ICU, um, another tool that's commonly um, used is the Richmond Agitation Sedation Scale, or the RAS. And that's essentially just a um, scale from negative three uh, to positive four with zero being normal and that kind of gauges their uh, level of alertness of a patient. So negative three being someone who's comatose and positive, uh, positive four being someone who's completely agitated, combative, really causing a ruckus. So um, it kind of gives you just a really quick assessment of, okay, where's this patient at? So I, I'm, I'm just going to admit right now, I'm a huge fan of Dr. In a way, I remember being a resident when many of these articles were being published. I thought they were amazing. So she was talking, I believe it was uh, she, um, was talking or, or publishing about identifying this problem. And I mean, it was a problem we saw all the time. Day after day, we saw at least one, two, maybe three patients that had an acute delirium. And she was writing about this identification and how you would know for sure. And she also gave us a bunch of risk factors, right? She's, in my mind, when I read her articles, I better understood how to identify somebody that had a delirium. 
You are familiar with those risk factors. You want to talk about those just a little bit? Yeah, sure. So, um, and this is kind of leads into um, things that you'd identify on a shelf exam. Um, so, you know, patients that are kind of uh, really at high risk um, are those with uh, old age. Um, and then um, another thing that's referenced a lot is uh, um, kind of prior um, knowledge or diagnosis of dementia. Um, as far as other things that uh, tend to be risk factors that are modifiable um, would be visual and hearing um, impairment, so kind of sensory impairment, um, also altered uh, sleep cycles, um, immobility, um, to name a few, and then um, kind of underlying metabolic uh, disturbances, whether it be dehydration or um, infection, fever, um, et cetera. So those are kind of some of the main things to look out for in patients that uh, potentially could spiral out of control and develop a really severe case of delirium. My impression is that one of the most challenging places where we see this pop up is a 74-year-old uh, patient who is in the hospital for some sort of necessary medical event um, or has uh, a trauma of some sort, not necessarily hip fracture, not necessarily cardiovascular surgeries. Those are very high-risk settings for, for a delirium. But in any case, there's a, it's a lower-risk setting for a delirium. A delirium emerges, and um, you start talking to the family, and you don't see the waxing and waning so much of the cognitive, uh, the cognition, right, this fluctuation and ability to attend to the conversation or attend to what's happening. And uh, you start wondering about, or I start wondering about dementia. Mm -hmm. Is there a way to easily sort out the difference between delirium and, de and dementia, or is it simply sometimes they're both there and, and that has to be enough? Right, yeah, so um, certainly filling the gaps here, Dr. Roundy, but uh, my understanding is, um, yeah, with delirium, um, certainly the acute onset of it um, is really kind of the slam dunk that distinguishes delirium from just uh, progression or um, someone's baseline of dementia or Alzheimer's disease. So, um, you know, a lot of times either you'll observe it personally if you're following a patient for a number of days or you can talk to family. Um, you know, is this where they're at baseline or does this seem like the last couple of days or um, even over the course of a day, um, is your loved one really out of it? Uh, very much different. And a lot of times that can be um, a pretty useful question to use just to screen to see, you know, what's going on. Um, however, sometimes, you know, uh, family members aren't the best historians, so it's a little bit hard to tease out. Um, Generally speaking, it sounds like you're saying for at least the, the types of exams that you take, knowing the difference between an acute onset and a gradual onset at least helps you know if there's a delirium on top of a dementia, mm -hmm. right? So, right. so the, the, the nature of the change and the nature, not, not just the nature of when it changes and how suddenly, but how it changes. Mm -hmm. So now there's a fluctuation as opposed to kind of a steady cognitive mm -hmm. decline or a cognitive change. Mm -hmm. yeah, Does that yeah. sound about right? That's a helpful clarification, yes, definitely. You have a mnemonic I've never seen before. I've seen a couple of other mnemonics that um, I've sometimes had students memorize. Uh, one is, I watch death. I, I'm not sure <laughs> that the way that medicine is changing that all of our mnemonics are appropriate anymore. <laughs> and I've also seen WIMP, 
W H H H, maybe a few more H's. I M, maybe a couple of P's. I don't remember now. Yeah. Um, but you have a, a, a mnemonic I really like yeah. to help identify causes of delirium. Right. And and before we talk about causes of delirium, and even treatments of delirium, the best treatment for delirium is to identify the cause and solve the cause of a delirium, right? Mm-hmm. right? So if somebody has a urinary tract infection, they're busy hallucinating, they're tearing the the stuffing out of the bed that they're in and throwing it at the walls, right? You can do a lot of things to settle that down, but until you solve the primary problem, which would be the urinary tract infection, mm-hmm. doesn't matter so much, right? Right. So identification is a big deal. Let's mm-hmm. talk about the mnemonic that you have provided here. Yeah, so full disclosure, the reason why I love this mnemonic is because in general I hate mnemonics. So this one was nice and concise and um, a resident taught this to me while I was uh, on a rotation and it's uh, MISTY, so M-I-S-T-Y and then the Y is uh, the Greek psi, so um, that'll make more sense here. So um, starting at the top, uh, M stands for metabolic, so anything that um, potentially could throw that off. So uh, common ones, dehydration, acidosis, um, hypoxia, or hypercarbia, those are things that can um, definitely cause an acute um, altered uh, mental state. And you know things that you can kind of going on to management investigation of these things, simple things like labs, like a, you know basic metabolic profile, getting a VBG, um, et cetera, can, can help you distinguish whether or not that's the case. Um, I uh, stands for infection. So as mentioned, a urinary tract infection, super common cause of um, delirium or even you know pneumonia or uh, you name it, any infection can really uh, throw off somebody who's at risk. So simple things to do there, CBC, UA, chest x-ray, et cetera. I, I'm gonna jump in for a second here. I think it's more common to be aware mm-hmm. when somebody has an upper respiratory infection, a pneumonia, I should mm-hmm. say, sorry, not an upper respiratory, but a pneumonia. Mm-hmm. It, it seems like everybody knows, right? It's it's obvious that somebody's physically ill mm-hmm. and there seems to be a better link between the behavior changes and the illness. Mm-hmm. Those urinary tract infections sneak up on people. Oh, yeah, absolutely. That's my, that's my impression. Mm-hmm. It's also one of the reasons I think that, that um, the Centers for Medicaid and Medicare Services, and I may have that backward, it might be the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. I think that's one of the reasons why they've worked on those indwelling catheters so much mm-hmm. to try and reduce infection, right? The, yeah. the complications of, of those urinary tract infections are pretty significant. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Um, yeah, no, I think that's, that's well said, and as I'm sure you guys will experience um, a lot of patients that you're managing, the discussion is, what do we do with this catheter? When can we get it out? So. Um, yeah, UAs are definitely insidious, can a lot of times uh, be hidden subclinical, so um, always a good idea to, to investigate those. Very good idea. Mm-hmm. Uh, so infection, MIS, structural. Yeah, S, so structural. So this would be, this is a little bit more of a broad category, but um, thinking of CNS lesions, so uh, someone with a subdural, epidural hematoma or, or a bleed, um, things like that. So uh, a quick way to um, investigate that sure if the, the history fits, um, there's a history of trauma or you're just really suspicious, um, you know, getting a quick head CT, no contrast. Um, kind of lumped in with this, uh, not sure if it really fits into mnemonic super well, but um, can be seizures. So um, a post-ictal state can definitely um, throw someone into a delirium. Um, so something always to be, to be aware of. 
we do see our neurologist compadres use EEGs with some regularity mm -hmm. in that kind of a setting. Yeah. And there's also, if I understand, if I remember correctly, there is a change in EEG rhythm mm -hmm. in a delirium. Right. Did you read anything about diagnosing deliriums with EEGs? Yeah, um, not. I didn't do a ton of investigation into it, and from my experience uh, consulting neurologists, it's a little bit ambiguous. Um, certainly the um, buzzword that you'll see on your exams is kind of the diffuse slowing uh, pattern, um, which you know, for the purpose of exams is really helpful. Um, from what I understand, uh, the purpose of real life, that's not super helpful, um, other than, you know, avert um, seizure activity. Um, usually we can't really diagnose delirium from an EEG, maybe just rule out other causes. Yeah. All right. Um, I, the, the diffuse EEG, the diffuse, uh, how did you word that again? Yeah, diffuse uh, slowing. So that is fairly common language in a delirium, right? Mm -hmm. But it's not necessarily diagnostic of a delirium. Right, right? yeah. Okay, mm -hmm. good. Uh, toxins? So, yeah, T for toxins. So that is anywhere from, um, you know, illicit substances to medications. So, um, yeah, particularly getting a quick uh, urinary drug screen or um, serum drug screen can help, um, if, especially if, you know, you have a young patient um, who you're particularly suspicious for. Um, but medications, that's the huge one. This is, um, as you guys will learn when you're on the wards, is medication reviews are so important. Um, and especially in the elderly, a lot of them are on medications that can um, easily throw them into delirium. So common ones, um, and this is particularly high yield on shelf exams, are benzodiazepines and then also antihistamines. And the um, thought behind that is the anticholinergic effects. Um, so you guys can remember with the mnemonic for that um, can definitely cause delirium. Um, some other things that I've... L let me hold on right there. Let's yeah. add anticholinergics independently. Right, right? exactly, yeah. And, and there's a, there was an explosion of anticholinergic usage associated with urge incontinence, mm -hmm. right? So I think that's changed a little bit. They now have anticholinergics that seem to preferentially not get into the bloodstream and instead get filtered out into the kidneys and then spend time in the bladder and, and don't seem to have the same cognitive effects. I haven't followed the literature on that. Did that pan out to be accurate or do we still have a huge problem with uh, these anticholinergic medications causing CNS problems? Yeah, um, you know, I don't have an answer as far as the literature goes, but, um, you know, as many medications go, even when they're specific for uh, a particular region, a lot of times there is crossover. So. Um, I'm sure that there's many instances where, um, you know, something that's supposed to be urinary tract specific gets into the CNS, but hopefully less. Hopefully less. Good. Uh, psychiatry. So the the why, which is not really why, it's yeah. a Greek. It's a psi, yeah. Psi. Right. So this one's a little bit of a wastebasket term. So anything psych psychiatric, so um, an acute psychosis. Um, uh, mania, uh, kind of things that we've already mentioned, or even you know, depression with psychosis, uh, some other primary diagnosis, um, and certainly uh, dementia, um, you know, can help in your history, almost like an acute on chronic dementia, um, which a lot of times is what you see with uh, delirious patients. I'm a person that enjoys watching true crime solving stories, like Forensics Files, I love that, right? I'll, I'll even watch it on uh, YouTube. Not a lot of things I watch on YouTube. I enjoy that. One of the common um, 
elements in that TV series is a heavy metal that is sometimes used uh, to kill spouses, right? So a delirium from heavy metals would also be one of the toxins, yeah, okay. like, as, as I recall. Does that sound familiar? I don't yeah, know. Yeah, I mean, it sounds that. right. Yeah, as you just mentioned it too, um, you know, if you have a patient who's altered mental status and you're, you know, kind of fishing for answers, certainly heavy metal, lead, um, arsenic, to name a few, um, off the top of my head, can all contribute and, yeah, cause delirium. Um, an oddball delirium I'll throw out we didn't mention this one and uh, I'm not sure if this is infectious or if this is psych but something like an anti-NMDA antibody uh, mm, event right, right? Mm -hmm. so that's gaining more traction I, I was just reading an article about that not long ago and it sounds like you know there were these cases that pop up and they're identified and they seem to make the news but it sounds like maybe a lot more people have that happen than we're aware of mm -hmm. Did you come across that in your reading at all? Um, not specifically, but um, yeah, certainly a very interesting phenomenon. I think you even referenced in maybe one of the past podcasts that I've been listening to that, that you know, common cause for um, acute presentation of psychosis. Or maybe not common, but it's something that's been happening. Something that does show up. Yeah. Uh, let's move on. Um, diagnosis, we talked about the CAM. Mm -hmm. uh, we talked about the criteria from the DSM. I know that when I was on the wards, right, so I was at uh, Baylor College of Medicine as a psychiatry resident, we were in this very large hospital, we were in a couple of large hospitals there, mm -hmm. and uh, we would get the, the request to assess a patient, usually as I mentioned, for depression or for psychosis, and, and most of the time those ended up being deliriums, um, with some, some exceptions. Right? Mm -hmm. um, and typically what we did were things like registration and recall. I'm going to say three words. I would like you to repeat those three words after I say them. Then I'll ask you to recall those three words in five minutes. Very impaired mm -hmm. in a delirium. Also impaired in a dementia quite often. Mm -hmm. um, we would also do draw a clock. Right? Mm -hmm. We would have people draw a clock to command. I'd like you to draw a clock. I'd like you to set the numbers at 10 minutes after 11. Actually, I did that wrong. I gave the instructions wrong, Peter. <laughs> I'd like you to draw a clock. I'd like you to make it large enough that you can put all of the numbers on the face and then set the hands to 10 minutes after 11 o'clock. Right? And, and I can't tell you how many people either had the hands the same length, both pointing to the 11 because they were stimulus bound, mm -hmm. um, or I'm sorry, not to the 11, but to the 10, or to the 11, had a tough time with that, right? Or mm -hmm. the 10 and the 11. And uh, how many people actually put faces on the clock when they had a delirium, mm. right? They would not draw a face clock, but they would draw a clock yeah. <laughs> and somehow try and work a, a face into that. Mm -hmm. um, and then there were other fun stories of how to diagnose uh, delirium. I don't know if you ran across the Frank Jones story. Mm, no. So there's a, a story, it doesn't seem to help very well. The CAM is clearly a better, a better process. But when you're you know, reading through all of these things to try and figure out how do you identify a delirium in a hospital, how are you sure that it's truly a delirium with that one hour window, not necessarily observing the fluctuation, not sure if you're getting good information from the people that you're talking to for the collaterals. Um, I ran across this uh, Frank Jones story and it goes something like this. I have a friend named Frank Jones. His feet are so big that he has to put his pants on over his head. 
And then depending on how people either laughed or didn't laugh at that, there was sort of an algorithm that worked out to whether somebody had a delirium or not. I, I don't think that ended up being very useful, but I think it spoke to the idea that sometimes it is a little bit challenging to sort out the difference between the two. Mm, yeah. So Certainly more entertaining than the cam, but... <laughs> it was a lot more entertaining. I tried it a couple of times, but it never really seemed to be something that I could do the way that the authors described it, so... Um, how do you keep delirium from happening, Peter? Yeah, so I think a lot of the emphasis in delirium management in general is identifying um, patients that are at high risk and modifying some of these um, factors that um, oftentimes kind of tend to cause people to spiral out of control. So um, a lot of times in hospitals, you'll notice that there's a, a kind of a delirium uh, protocol um, order set and um, you know I've never before really looked into it but these are some of the things that a lot of times go into it so um, things that we really like to emphasize when we're looking at prevention and delirium is uh, keeping a patient oriented so um, that's why a lot of times in patient rooms you'll see a clock kind of front and center really easy to reference we'll be updating the dates um, just so the patient can kind of be oriented in time um, likewise windows are really helpful um, and then also verbal reorientation. So a lot of times the, the staff will kind of say, hey, you know, introduce themselves each morning, say, hey, this is where you are, this is why you're here, so that patients are aware of what's kind of going on in life. Um, another thing is cognitive stimulation. So um, one way is that we can uh, help that is encouraging family and friends to come by and uh, have the patient not just kind of bent up by themselves in bed all day, but to be interacting with them in positive ways. Um, and to reduce nighttime stimulation as well. So um, a lot of times trying to minimizing the amount of lab draws that we do while patients should be sleeping, trying to keep the noise low, uh, making sure the curtains are, act, are um, adequately blacked out so that um, they can sleep really well uh, when they're supposed to be sleeping. Um, another big thing that I see slipping through the cracks is um, visual and audio uh, stimulation. So um, patients that wear glasses, you know, a lot of times when they're changing to the gowns, they take everything off and their glasses just get put in a cubby and they never wear them. But uh, making sure you're asking your patients, hey, do you usually wear um, visual correction and making sure they have access to the glasses and likewise hearing aids, kind of the same thing. Um, another big thing is keeping patients ambulating. Um, so, you know, it's pretty easy to just leave a patient in bed all day, um, especially if they're not feeling well, but really encouraging them, and not only just for their psychiatric health, but um, for another number of other reasons, um, getting patients up and walking as early as possible is, uh, is just really good. In a way, you, you have an, an article that you gave me to read that is 20 years old, more than 20 years old. Right. You didn't find anything better than this information, did you? Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, honestly, that's kind of one of my uh, disappointments when I dove into the literature because, you know, you see these patients all the time and you want to know what can you, can you do about it. And really the only really good strong evidence is in prevention. So, um, yeah, there's a paper out of the New England Journal of Medicine published in 1999, and um, it's titled A Multi-Component Intervention to Prevent Delirium in Hospitalized Older Patients. And um, essentially what they did is, kind of as I mentioned, the, the prevention steps, they identified six modifiable uh, risk factors um, and uh, did interventions on them and kind of analyzed um, patient outcomes. So this was done in a, um, 
Let's see. I might be confusing this to the other paper, but um, this sounds right. I yeah, think this is the Inno- the another Inouye article. This yeah. you're, you're you're talking about. I think the Swedish article talked about I, that we don't necessarily identify mm-hmm. uh, delirium outside of the high risk areas, and that you can intervene. My impression was the interventions were much like what had been described twenty years right. ago by Doctor Inouye. Yeah, exactly. So um, yeah, excuse me for that, but um, essentially what this paper established was that. Um, they kind of looked at outcomes as far as uh, length of stay, incidence of delirium, um, and then severity. And um, they had a treatment group and a control group. And what they, they found is that um, there was a huge, um, I wouldn't say huge, but a statistically significant um, reduction in incidence. I think it was 15% in the control group and then just under 10% in the treatment group. And what they found was there was a very significant uh, reduction in the cost of each stay so um, you know treating delirium and everything that goes into that is really expensive what they found was that these simple um, you know modified risk factors um, only costs on average three hundred and twenty seven dollars to implement and then um, if they had a patient that became delirious that on average cost six point three thousand dollars per case so um, kind of the argument there was that these interventions are really cost-effective and uh, really helpful. Um, And then other kind of secondary outcomes they found was that there was a reduction in the number of days of delirium and the number of episodes for those who did develop it in the treatment group. I think the articles were so similar. If you recall when we were talking about these articles, I read the uh, Swedish Swedish article mm-hmm. first, or Switzer- yeah. the, the article from Switzerland, Switzerland Sweden. I think, yeah. Sweden, I think okay. it's Sweden. Right. <laughs> um, I read that article first and I was laughing. I said something along the lines of, this is like a duplicate of the stuff I was reading 20 years ago that Dr. Inouye was publishing. And then the next article was the one by Dr. Inouye. I, I thought that was kind of mm-hmm. fascinating. When you and I first started talking about this um, topic as being something that you would explore and be able to provide a a viewpoint that would be contextually meaningful for other students to listen to, to be able to have additional information uh, for their exams. One of the first things we talked about was this prevalence of delirium in the hospital. It's not uncommon. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, no, absolutely. Um, Particularly in certain settings, as we discussed, um, those are your post-op patients and uh, critically ill patients uh, in particular. Um, you know, the incidence is quoted, you know, over 50% in a lot of studies, but um, certainly not uncommon even in the general wards or observation units. Um, but yeah, so it, it, you'll, it's something you'll definitely come across uh, pretty quickly and frequently. I was in, impressed as a resident. So we were, as you might imagine, a lot of this information was hot off the presses, so to speak. Uh, Dr. Inouye's CAM assessment and some of the recognition of who would be at high risk for a delirium. And one of the most amazing things was this article that said somewhere between 40 and 70? Yeah, 70%. Of people who have hip surgeries Mm -hmm. have a delirium. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's a huge number. Right. I I don't even, I can't even wrap my head around that, right? So So I read that, and then the next thing I started hearing was all of, all of these people who said, yeah, so-and-so had a hip surgery. Boy, they were sure acting strange. I was like, huh, <laughs> I'm wondering if they had a delirium. You know, And the attribution was, 
you know, they're just not used to walking or um, being in the hospital was really bothersome to them or whatever, whatever the, you know, the attributional cause was, it was always fascinating to hear. And in the back of my mind, I was always thinking, wow, how, how is it that, you know, the hip bone connected to the brain? You know, <laughs> I, I don't understand it, right? right. Why these deliriums happen is, uh, is really mysterious to me. I know that when I was a resident, I was in a, uh, a wonderful setting where we had these amazing speakers come in and talk to us about different topics. One of the most memorable topics I recall was a description of the pathophysiology of delirium. We seem to think, almost 20 years ago, that dopamine, hyperdopaminergic activity, or high dopaminergic activity, and low acetylcholine, uh, low acetylcholine activity were factors in a delirium. And yet, when we add antipsychotics, or uh, I'm sorry, antipsychotics, which would be dopamine blockade, right, to, mm -hmm. to reduce the amount of dopamine, it sounds like at most we settle agitation but don't necessarily improve outcomes. We don't slow down the delirium. We don't change the length of stays necessarily. There's nothing that comes out of that other than the one-to-one -one can manage the patient, it sounds like. Mm -hmm. Is that about right? Yeah, definitely. So um, as far as pharmacotherapy for um, a patient who is actively delirious, um, yeah, unfortunately, there's not great evidence that any interventions are super helpful or change outcomes significantly. Um, as far as the um, dopamine thing, you know, haloperidol is something that um, we use commonly and is written into the guidelines essentially um, for the patient that's agitated that you really just need to calm down because they're a threat to themselves or others. Um, and as far as, you know, shelf and board exams go, um, my understanding is that's going to be the right answer uh, verified by almighty first aid. Um, you know, and a lot of, another drug that you'll see commonly used is Seroquel for, uh, or Quetiapine for its sedative effects, particularly in the evenings if somebody's sundowning and getting agitated. But um, those are two, those are the two drugs really that we have to, to in a sense, treat delirium. But unfortunately, the studies have shown that um, it has almost no effect on length of stay or mortality long term. So it's really something we just do to kind of control the patient so that we can um, just do our jobs. Um, there has been kind of a modest um, prophylactic benefits um, shown with some of the antipsychotics, um, but at this point it's not strong enough that um, any of the guidelines recommend um, prophylactically treating high-risk patients. Um, in fact, they specifically say in the guidelines, we do not recommend that you use this as prophylaxis. So um, unfortunately, nothing great as far as pharmacotherapy goes. Something I didn't know. You mentioned outcomes of studies associated with the cholinesterase inhibitors, mm -hmm. uh, the dementia medications, right? Right. What was the outcome of those studies? Yeah, so kind of getting into um, pathophysiology of it, um, you know, we know that anticholinergic medications can precipitate delirium. So, you know, it almost makes common sense. Why don't we treat with, you know, centrally acting um, acetylcholinesterase inhibitors, um, you know, the ones that we use in Alzheimer's and dementia. Um, unfortunately, those trials showed uh, no benefit in um, a very high increased mortality. So, um, you know, unfortunately, that's kind of a non-starter there. Um, there are a couple of other medications listed here that you saw some, some writing about. 
-hmm. I think the melatonin system and the SPNK1 system, mm -hmm. uh, the orexin pathways maybe, mm -hmm. had s there's some interest in that because right. of some associations. Has anything panned out in those pathways yet for treatment? Right, yeah, you know, at this point it's pretty preliminary and there's a couple studies that show, um, you know, a modest benefit um, and certainly not enough to impress the powers that be to write them into the guidelines. Um, but, you know, there is promise, um, another drug, uh, gabapentin, especially in our uh, post-operative patients, um, has shown a modest benefit too to reduce incidence of delirium. And kind of the thought behind that is, um, you know, modulating pain reducing the need for uh, a narcotic pain medication, which can also precipitate delirium. Takeaway for the boards. Yeah. For the shelf exams, for the board exams. Mm -hmm. I will add one caveat to everything we have talked about, give you a chance to give some takeaways, and then uh, maybe call it good for the day. Yeah. The one caveat I would add to all of this is this. We have a black box warning associated with the use of antipsychotic medications in patients with dementia. So when you're looking at questions that are associated with elderly that have cognitive changes and are agitated, you will want to make sure that it's a delirium that you're using the uh, haloperidol to treat rather than an agitation associated with a dementia. That would be very contraindicated. So one, one small caveat I would add. Now, mm -hmm takeaways from from you Peter what, what would you add all right so hopefully um, you know this is part that's practical for you guys immediately but um, I think some important takeaways from um, our discussion here is um, identifying delirium from a vignette um, that's super high yield on boards so kind of as we mentioned um, you know acute waxing waning consciousness acute onset uh, potentially an underlying cause and some of the risk factors we mentioned somebody elderly someone post-op um, those are ones that you're going to look at and say, hey, this probably is, this is someone who's delirious. Um, and then as far as acute management, um, this is where it gets a little bit nuanced. Um, you know, if it's not clear that they're in a delirious state but are high risk at developing it, um, a lot of times it's just some of these orientation procedures. And uh, I think I recall seeing that on a shelf exam saying, you know, oh, get this person oriented and situated well um, rather than pharmacotherapy. But um, if they are um, combative, agitated, clearly need some kind of intervention, then um, you know, haloperidol is the answer there. Um, and then uh, never will the answer be benzodiazepine. So um, that's kind of a, I guess, a board exam pearl there is um, that's almost always the wrong answer in an elderly person. Very good. Uh, the benzos, the reasoning being that it appears that they disinhibit people. Right. right. There, there. As a resident, there was a huge discussion, right? So, benzodiazepines. There was a uh, a fight in the literature. I went through dozens of articles at one point, way back when, hmm. about uh, management of uh, delirium. The question was benzodiazepines or antipsychotics, and it looks like maybe where we've come to is mostly neither. Mm -hmm. There is one place where you might use a benzodiazepine in a treatment of a delirium. Can you tell me what that might be off the top of your head? Mm. I think as I was reviewing just some of the board prep, and I may not be reading your mind adequately, but um, substance, <laughs> yeah. Read my mind adequately, so, very well said. So for substance abuse, I know for PCP um, intoxication, 
Um, there's a lot of parallels kind of with some of the presentation in the vignette between someone who's delirious and someone who's intoxicated as far as, you know, visual hallucinations, uh, being agitated, hyperactive. Um, one thing I actually thought would be helpful to point out is some of the other hallmarks of PCP that you might see show up on a, a, an exam vignette is um, the nystagmus and then also if you're looking at the patient, you know, if it's a 24-year-old male, they're probably not delirious if there's no sign of infection or anything else, maybe they're, they're under the influence. But that would be one appropriate indication for a benzodiazepine to calm them down. So believe it or not, I had no idea about that. Okay. Yeah. So I wish I, uh, I wish you, I, I wish you uh, not only could read my mind, I wish you could implant stuff in there that I had no idea about. The, the one I was thinking about is there, the last I read, there's still some mixed evidence about use of benzodiazepines in an alcohol withdrawal delirium. Oh, right. Mm -hmm. And um, one of the things that seems to be true is that with a benzodiazepine or an alcohol withdrawal delirium, mm -hmm. Those might be different animals than the other deliriums, right. which, which does get into the importance, maybe not the board exam pearl, but the mm -hmm. treatment pearl is being able to know what somebody's substance use history is, mm -hmm. like family information, understanding alcohol drink or drinking history when somebody comes in. Mm -hmm. those, those withdrawal deliriums can be impressive. Mm -hmm. Right, so. yeah, and that's certainly an important caveat. Um, sorry, I neglected to mention that, but um, yeah, unless there's a specific indication for um, you know, benzodiazepines, uh, certainly alcohol withdrawal delirium tremens, is that's absolutely uh, the standard of care. And, and again, generally speaking, though, you're going to be tested on questions that, that uh, are going to test your understanding to generally avoid those, mm -hmm. right? right? Benzodiazepines are, are problematic medications in many ways, and who knows, maybe we'll have a pad podcast at that at some point in the future. Peter, any other pearls that you would uh, toss out there before we stop today? Yeah, I think, um, yeah, you don't need to. I think my initial relationship with delirium was I was very intimidated and didn't know what to do. So um, I think if you just have a framework for working through it while you're on the wards, um, you know, I think it'll go a long ways in helping you feel a little bit more comfortable with um, what is just kind of a growing experience is uh, dealing with an acutely agitated patient. Wonderful ending. Peter, thank you so much for joining me, and good luck in your match. All right, thank you. Thank you.